this is Sophie Wilson, and you are listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Patrons of the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast get free audiobooks and bonus episodes. Hi, this is Linus Wilson. In this episode of the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast, we're going to talk with Alex Crater and Stephen Danette of Acorn to Arabella about their experience building a 37-foot wooden catch in rural Massachusetts. They make great YouTube videos about their boat building experiences on the Acorn to Arabella YouTube channel. You should definitely check that out. But first, I'd like to talk about the Golden Globe race, and we'll start with the fifth dismasting of a Golden Globe boat. Here's a call between Slow Boat Sailing podcast guest and founder and chairman of the Golden Globe race, Don McIntyre, and the latest sailor to be rescued from that race, Susie Goodall of England, and the only woman in the race. First of all, can you confirm that there are no other problems with the boat? Uh, your satellite phone is okay and your safety gear is okay? No, no, no. Um... The boat is destroyed. The boat inside and out is destroyed. I can't make a jury rig. I can make no jury rig. My wooden vane is, is, is ripped to pieces. Uh, the boat is, is uh, the only thing that's left is a hull. Um, okay. Then okay. Then I would recommend you leave your EPIRB on, uh, and uh, we will assess the situation. So at the moment, what you're saying is the hull is secure. You're not at risk of sinking. It's just that you are extremely disabled and you cannot make progress. Yes. Uh, yes. Yes. Um, I don't know if my engine works. Uh, I haven't tried. Uh, I'm not going to just yet. But I have no wind vane. And no form of jury rig, my entire rig has gone over overboard. But the whole hull and deck is intact. Okay, so hull and deck and all hatches and portholes, everything is secure so you can remain afloat, but you are totally disabled. And you're okay? No, no injuries for you? Uh, I, I, well, we rolled and I threw across the cabin. And uh, I think I was uh, uh, locked, locked out for a moment or two um, because I didn't quite... Uh, know what had happened and it's uh yeah so i i got a bit of a, a head um uh, uh hit in the head yeah yeah okay yeah, um, all right uh, can you describe uh, the can you describe the conditions the wind strength and sea state oh uh, right now um uh wind strength right now is probably about 45 knots it's calmed down uh been uh it's been sat at 60 i was just masking 60 knots I have the flipped video on the Slow Boat Sailing YouTube channel, which goes into all the details of how Susie Goodall, the English sailor, lost her rig and was pitch-pulled in the Southern Ocean, 2,000 nautical miles west of Cape Horn. The Cliff Notes version of that is that she knew about the storm. She was getting prepared for it. She had a wind vane failure of her monitor wind vane, and before that, she was sailing downwind she set a jordan series drogue and she went down below for a while because she was getting tired and as she was going back up before she opened the hatch her boat got pitch pulled when she went on deck afterwards after she 
woke up from her concussion, she found that the line to the Jordan series drove, um, in addition to the mast and rigging breaking away, that line also broke away. So the open question is, did the, the, the line to the Jordan series drove break before she pitch pulled or afterwards? If it broke before, then it seems like a reasonable explanation of why she pitch-pulled that suddenly she was going slow and then was able to go faster and then went stern over front, possibly on a breaking wave. You know, I think there'll be a lot of debate with no possible uh, resolution to this. I definitely am not the one to talk about optimal storm tactics. Maybe Captain Vossel talks about that in his book, but sailing to Treasure Island, the cruise of the Zora, where he advocates for the use of a sea anchor and a tri-sail, which is a, a small uh, mainsail to ride out a gale at sea. But, you know, I think as more experienced people will say that every situation is different. What arguably was Susie's worst storm of the race, which did not pitch pole her and she survived, she hand steered, not by design, but she just couldn't figure out a way to get off the wheel. And I think you, in retrospect, you say she probably would have been better off in this storm on Monday morning that had she hand steered. But that's easy to say, hard to do as a solo sailor for days on end, no sleep. So certainly since she was inside the cabin, she survived pitch pole. And had she been on deck and it pitch pulled, she might have not. Mark Slats was in a very dangerous storm, the one that dismasted Avalash Tommy and Gregor McGuckin in the Indian Ocean. And Mark Slats was washed overboard twice in that storm, Avalash Tommy told a news outlet that he was washed overboard too and just clung to the top of the mast. And falling from the top of the mast was how he injured his back severely when the boat righted itself. Now, I've seen documentaries where they've argued based on tank testing that a breaking wave as small as a third of the size of the, the length of the boat, so the length on deck of the boat, it is sufficient to capsize a boat or or roll it so you know you can easily imagine if you have eight meter seas uh that it's possible to get a breaking wave uh that would cause a 36 foot boat to capsize and roll even if that doesn't cause a loss of the rig it, uh, it could create a roll Susie is expected to land in Punta Arenas, Chile, on the Shinfu cargo ship on Friday. Supposedly, there's going to be a big media scrum for that. She has been largely silent since her rescue, and I reached out for an interview, which was not accepted uh, through her publicist. I think it was three to four meter seas when she was rescued. The Shinfu, I think it's a 190-meter cargo vessel, has four cranes on it, I guess, to pick up the box containers or something like that. And they used one of the cranes, uh, which Susie evidently last sued. She's not commented on the rescue, nor has anyone really from the ship commented on the rescue since she was rescued last week. But they sent out a picture, the uh, Chilean Rescue Coordination Center, uh, MRCC, sent out a picture of her on the crane and being hoisted up by the crane. She was the only one that I believe that's been rescued out of the four people that have been rescued of the 18 starters in the Golden Globe race. Uh, four have been rescued. The other three were rescued 
by rib. It's a much trickier procedure to get up a high-sided ship such as the cargo ship that she's on and uh, it was clever thinking and and good advice for Golden Globe to suggest that but that's still fraught with risk obviously in big seas a swinging crane is uh, definitely if you get hit with that especially in the wrong place you could die and certainly be knocked off the boat so I'm sure it was uh, an exciting thing for her to actually lasso onto that and be able to clip into that with her climbing harness and then being pulled up via the crane onto the deck. But evidently she is safe uh, and her concussion uh, seems from what little reports we have not to be debilitating and she was able to she was able to set a sea anchor prior to being rescued. She was also able to start her engine prior to being rescued, although I think it died somewhat and was unreliable, which is, you know, par for the course in my view. Uh, to get a sailboat engine working in three to four meter seas is kind of mission impossible, I think, especially if you don't have an absolutely full tank. Um, and, you know, especially if you've been, I don't know, pitch pulled. That it was amazing she got it started. Started, but my experience, a small boat in big seas doesn't make a lot of headway unless you're going downwind. And so the engine is, you know, fairly useless unless you have all downwind and relatively small seas. And she did not have that. Her plan for a jury rig was to use the spinnaker poles. And you heard in that clip that she lost the spinnaker poles, which were on deck. And so that was why she didn't feel she could do a jury rig to Chile. It was definitely the right move to keep the EPIRB on and get rescue. Uh, it's it's over a week later now, and her the closest Golden Globe competitor, Istvan Kopar, is just really passing her area. And he's actually uh, went well south of where Susie's boat last gave a position. So one of the things with Susie's boat, DHL Starlight, a 36-foot Rustler sailboat, after it was dismasted, reportedly the chain plates were ripped out. So there was a lot of deck hardware holes in the boat, and it was leaking. She had lost her charging abilities. I think her batteries were still working, but she had lost her use of solar panels so the batteries are not maintaining charge and so the when the pumps were left on standby or just left off it sunk right and so it's, it's most likely scenario is that it sunk or the the tracker has run out of batteries uh, and it will eventually sink you can start your round-the-world trip today under sail by purchasing a copy of How to Sail Around the World Part-Time that dispels many of the myths about sailing around the world. Don't wait until you retire. Start planning today so you can cast off the dock lines before it's too late. That book is available on Amazon in ebook and paperback form. You can give the gift of an ebook with someone's email address, and there's still time for to ship it before Christmas. If you want to hear the audio version, a pledge for a limited time of just one dollar to patreon.com slash slowboatsailing will give you the complete audiobook of How to Sail Around the World Part-Time and the complete audiobook of Captain J.C. Voss's Sailing to Treasure Island, The Cruise of the Zora. 
so you can listen to it while you work on your book. You can buy the audiobook separately as an album on iTunes or at gumroad.com. And we're doing a promotional code of ASP5, which gives you $5 off any audiobook that I sell on my Gumroad store. These are limited time offers while supplies last. So where does the Golden Globe stand right now? There are five competitors left. There are two that speak pretty good English. Uh, they both hold passports in either Australia or the United States. Uh, those are Istvan Kopar in fourth place, who faces a storm of his own. By the time I post this, it may have gone well, it may have gone badly. The uh, second place competitor, Mark Slats, is Dutch, but he also holds an Australian passport and speaks excellent English, like every Dutch person I've ever met. And uh, the leader is Jean-Luc Vandenheid, who speaks passable English, the Frenchman, but he's an awesome sailor, five-time circumnavigator in the lead. He's up to Brazil right now. He's got to the variable winds around the equator and has been tacking for a few days. It looked like he was going to take a break on the beaches of Rio for a while. He got so close to shore. In the middle of the fleet at third is Uku, who is approaching Cape Horn. And at the end, with a lot of barnacles closer to New Zealand, but east of New Zealand, is Tapio the Finn. The Australian captain Coconut dropped out when he stopped in his home port of Adelaide. He was way behind everyone else. Uh, he was thinking of going into the Chichester one-stop class, but he just, just decided to give it up because then he'd have to sail over half the way around the world, mostly in the, much of it in the Southern Ocean, to get to the finish. And then he'd have to get his boat back to Adelaide or sell it. So uh, it was very uh, tempting for him to just stop and stay, and that's what he did. The other competitor who's in the Chichester one-stop class and thus out of the race, essentially, is the Russian Igor. And he had a huge barnacle problem. His boat was going very slow. Uh, it was going really dangerously slow. He also had a, a, a damaged forestay, and I'm glad he stopped to get that fixed. Lassab de Lone, France, is on the, his way back, so I think he's going to continue on and reportedly he's a very experienced racer and uh, very determined to finish the Golden Globe, even if it's in the Chichester class. Unfortunately, I think he, he power washed his boat right before he went into the water and didn't repaint, and his growth was really accelerated, maybe compared to other competitors. So it's not inconceivable by next episode or the following episode that we'll have a, a winner for the Golden Globe race. We have five competitors, five boats dismasted. If we lose one more competitor, you're more likely to be dismasted in the 2018 Golden Globe than to finish it. And uh, it seems almost inconceivable that all five uh, men will complete the race. But it's possible. You know, I think Mark Slats is pushing his boat very hard and pushing himself very hard. And he may come to regret that. I personally think that the only way for Mark Slats, who's at the time of speaking, was about 900 miles behind Jean-Luc Vandenheed. I personally think the only way he's going to overtake Vandenheed is if Vandenheed's rig uh, breaks. And so... I 
I think that, you know, Mark is a, a tremendous competitor, but I think he should play it a little safer because his chances of winning are really dependent on Van and Heat's rig not winning. Van and Heat is a tremendous sailor. I am absolutely convinced that no one else in the fleet can outsail him on a, you know, with comparable boats and he will hold on and extend that lead. He's been sailing fast ever since he had a uh, bolt that came loose that caused his shrouds to go loose. He's climbed the mast several times at sea since then to do some sort of repair to make the shrouds tighter, but he's worried that the upwind sailing, he he has a disadvantage, cannot push the boat as hard as he wants to, and there's the potential for uh, the rig to fail um, more likely with upwind work than downwind sailing, which he faces a lot of upwind sailing in the, the convergence zones and also with the easterly trade winds. So that's what we'll see will happen. I think there's nothing certain about the Golden Globe, though. Uh, anything can happen to any competitor at any time, and we found that to be the case. You know, I thought when Susie was in the Indian Ocean, that she was likely to be knocked out of the race due to that storm. And I was surprised to see that Loic LePage, in, in much milder conditions, lost his rig and his boat started sinking because it had a, a hole in the side of the boat and he had to be rescued so that he was rescued before Susie. You, you contrast, uh, uh, Loic LePage uh, was part of an international rescue. Uh, he, he arrived back in France. I doubt there was a lot of media coverage of that, but possibly it's the difference between France and the English language world that last I had not even heard that he'd arrived back home uh, until Golden Globe <laughs> pointed that out uh, to give you an idea of, of how much people follow Loic versus how much they follow Susie. You know, I think the only other competitor with kind of the, the interest compared to Susie Goodall uh, was Avalash Tommy, who was sailing a replica of Sue Haley. Sir Robin Knox Johnston's boat, uh, and he had a lot of uh, following in the in India, the uh, nation state of India. Uh, he's a commander of the navy there and a national hero in a way that I think a lot of the other competitors are a little more obscure to their home nations, with the possible exception of Susie Goodall, the youngest person and only woman in the race or to start the race. So I have four videos about the Golden Globe race. We'll probably have a few more before it's all over. You can also get kind of more up-to-the-minute coverage at WordPress, slowboatsailing.com. You go to the slowboatsailing.com and go to the blog section. That should be able to get you to that. And, you know, you can subscribe to the blog so you, you don't miss one. And much of what I've been writing about has been the Golden Globe race. But we got videos on Avalash Tommy, Gregor McGuckin. You'll get to see Loic LePage's dismasting in the video about Susie. And we also have a, a video about Jean-Luc Vandenheed. And you'll also get to see Mark Slats in that video, too. If you're a delivery captain, if you sell charters, if you have a marine business, or if you manufacture sailboats, you should advertise on the Slowboat Sailing podcast. Go to patreon.com slash slowboatsailing and look at the corporate sponsor and title sponsor levels. 
It's the most reasonable advertising you can get in the sailboat cruising area. If you're a captain or a broker, you don't need to start a podcast. It's a lot cheaper to advertise on this one. We get over 2,000 downloads per episode, over 124,000 downloads on the podcast. We're approaching a million views on the YouTube channel. You can advertise on either or both. Go to patreon.com slash slowboatsailing and look under the corporate and title sponsor levels. Next up is my interview with Alex and Stephen of Acorn to Arabella about their building of a 37-foot wooden catch. So why don't you say your names? Sure. I'm Alex Greeter. And I'm Steve Dinnett. I looked at your channel and some of your videos, and I noticed that you did some rock climbing before you started building Arabella? Did, yeah. Yeah, that's actually kind of how we met, sort of. Um, we met at school, we met at Unity College. We kind of got into climbing there, and that's kind of what's kept our friendship going for the most part, actually. <laughs> Some of it. <laughs> when did you get interested in sailboats? Uh, I've kind of always been, they've always intrigued me. I guess we used to vacation up on the coast of Maine when I was a kid. You know, you'd see all the wooden boats go by, and, I, uh, growing up on the farm and being in the in the old barns and that kind of thing, I had an appreciation for these large wooden structures and sailboats were kind of the uh, the holy grail of that because you know everything's curvy and it's way harder to build an object like that than it is a barn or some other building that's all plumb and square and 90 degrees. So Stephen, are you the carpenter of the two, or are you both carpenters before this? started i mean we both have skills but i definitely have a lot less <laughs> yeah so I'm, I'm the main carpenter for the project so. yeah it, it seems like a humongous challenge why did you think you wanted to build a wooden boat versus i don't know buy a used boat or something like that for me it was always about the creation it's always about going out into the woods with a chainsaw and cutting down a tree and turning it into a vessel that can then take you around the world I mean, it was that, that whole concept and idea has just really tickled my fancy. Yeah, and for me, I mean, the whole storyline was great. I, mean, I don't know, I've always been interested in boats, too, just traveling around. It just seemed like a great way to travel. I also lived in Mallorca for about three years and was around boats there, but never really kind of got into it. So, I don't know, there's something about a wooden boat that just feels different than a fiberglass boat or steel boat. Oh, it seems more cozy. That's my take on it, at least. <laughs> Have either one of you sailed before? Uh, not exactly. No, well, never. Not a little bit. He's done a couple small trips. I haven't sailed at all. Okay. All right. All right. Sounds good. That's okay. It's easy to learn. It's easier yeah. to learn than build a boat. I saw in the videos, it seemed like you were cutting down trees near your your home there in Massachusetts. Is that is that right? Yep. Yeah. So I'm fifth generation on a small farm here in Western Mass. So I used to be a, a small dairy farm way back in the day. For the last few generations, it's been kind of a hobby farm. You know, some dairy goats, some llamas, some chickens, some good sheep, that kind of deal. Not, nobody's made their living off of it for a long time. Um, but my family owns 50 acres and probably 40 of that or so is timbered. Um, so we literally just 
walk out back and the trees, and there's a lot of trees to pick from. We harvested all the trees for Arabella for less than one acre of the property. So are there any trees that are off your property? Are there any like planks that are coming from off your property, or are they all from your property in Massachusetts? There's a few that are off. We didn't have a timber big enough for the keel timber, so we got that through Duke at New England Naval Timbers in Connecticut. And that tree originated in upstate New York, where a family's owned the property since the 1800s, and they manage it for big timber trees. Um, so they needed to pay some taxes. They called the forester. The forester went and picked, I think, like four or five oaks. He called Duke. They cut them down. They trucked them to Connecticut. And then Duke milled them all up for big sailboat keels. And we bought one of those logs off Duke. And then we've been sourcing some black locusts from Cape Cod. We have an arborist out there who, whenever they get a nice locust that they have to take down, he squirrels away the butt log for us, and when he has a halfway decent pile, we take the truck and trailer and go out to the Cape and pick up the logs. And then we bought Victoria as a salvage boat, and she's done with um, Douglas fir, cedar, and mahogany, so we're going to salvage as much as we can off of her. But the lion's share, I mean, 90% of the timber came from the property here. And it's, it's mostly oak? Predominantly white oak, yep, um, as well as some white pine and some spruce. It seems like from the most recent videos, you have like the frames up and you have the keel timber up. What's the next big project for you guys? We need to wrap up the stem and the stern. So we cut the rabbit through midship and bent all those frames in. So we got to finish up the rabbit on the stem and the stern, do those frame sockets, bend those frames in. And then the next real big thing will be start to hanging planks. And we're hoping to do that shortly after the new year. So planks are what's between the frames? Is that like the outside of the boat? Yeah, the plank's outside of the boat. That's that's the hull, basically. Okay. And, you, you know, when I look at the the pictures on your videos, they, it there's the frame, and it, it seems like there's not much room in the hull, but maybe you take that frame off after it's completely molded? Right now, too, is all the mold mm -hmm. down the station, down the boat. Yeah. And then the rib bands that go on the outside. All of that comes out afterwards. So the only frames technically frames that are going in are what we steam bent in that last video that we showed. Okay. Those will be what the planks are attached to, and once that happens, then all the molds come out. Now, what kind of uh, sailboat is it going to be? Uh, what do you mean? What kind of design? How big will it be? Uh, she's a, a William Atkins Stormy Petrel, uh, and a Stormy Petrel is just a gap rig Ingrid. So not many people have seen or heard of the gap rig version, but Ingrid is fairly well known. Yeah. Water boats in the Pacific Northwest, I think in the 70s, something like that. They uh, made a fiberglass version called the Ingrid 38, and now those fiberglass boats have a really big following. So I saw some pictures of that. It's it's a full keel boat. Yep. How deep a draft will it be? 37, six on deck. Just by six. The beam's 11 foot four, and she'll displace 25,000 pounds, empty, bone dry, and 12,000 pounds of that is lead. Oh, okay. And you haven't got to the lead stage yet. Oh, that's all done. That's all done, yeah. You've done the lead already. Oh, yeah, we poured our own keel. Oh, okay. This past February, and we've been building the boat on top of it. Oh, okay. All right. And where'd you get all the lead? That was uh, quite an adventure, actually. It took us a long time to gather the lead. We were offered some uh, wheel weights from a tire shop. We gathered stuff off of Craigslist. We had friends donate stuff, so like roofing, flashing, things like that. 
And then the majority of it actually came from some salvage-led keels from boats that we took apart. So there were some derelict fiberglass boats that were just sitting around, and we ended up finding a couple of those and getting the keels off of them and chopping those up with a chainsaw. How much do you work on the boat per week? I mean, now it's our full-time job. Okay. So, and how long have you been working full-time on the boat? Alex has been full-time doing the videos for just over a year now. And it was just over a year ago that I quit my full-time job and I was still working part-time. So I went full-time on the boat, I think in May. Okay. When did you start just working on the boat? What, how long has that been? Uh, we cut down the first tree and launched the website in January of 2016. Okay. So we're about almost three years in? Yeah, the first... Oh. Two years we worked full-time jobs and worked on the boat nights, weekends, vacations, every spare minute we had. Yeah. And that was pretty much just laying the foundation. Um, cutting the trees, milling the lumber, building the boathouse, restoring the bandsaw, building the lofting floor, building the workbenches, just getting all of that infrastructure set up so that we could start building the boat. I, I don't want to impose any deadlines for you, but just like when would you think that you might put the hull in the water. When do you think that would be the likely date for that? Our typical answer is two to 10 years. Okay. <laughs> All right, so we're in year three, so maybe. How much money have you spent on the boat so far? No, no idea. idea. We don't keep track. Okay. I mean, it's kind of the ties in with, you know, how long is it gonna take us to do it? For us, it's more about the adventure and the journey than it is really figuring all that kind of stuff out. Yeah. Um, you know, this part of, you know, the build is actually just as important to us as actually sailing around the world. So, I don't know, we don't want to put any stress on it. It is what it is. Yeah, we basically take it in steps at a time. So, we made sure that we had enough funds and enough material to pour the ballast keel and buy the keel timber. And then it was, all right, we need to rally the funds to buy all the bronze to put the backbone together. And then it was the planking fasteners and that kind of thing. So we generally try to make sure that we have all of our bases covered for like the next four to six months of boat building. And we don't really look any farther beyond that. Yeah, we basically just budget the parts. Okay. Since you've been making the videos, have you gotten lots of invitations to go sailing with people? Or have lots of people visited you? Yeah, both. <laughs> yeah, both it's hard with the whole sailing thing because, I mean, it's, it's, building is so time consuming. So it's either you sail or you build your boat. Exactly. And so right now we kind of got to focus on, on the build. And like you said, you know, sailing, that's something that we can do once we're on our boat. And the idea is not to just put her in the water and start sailing ourselves. Um, you know, we can learn on her, so we'll have people come with the captain, and we'll be crewing our boat and learn that way. You said she's, she's going to be a gaff-rigged boat. Uh, how many masts will she have? Be catch rigged. Oh, okay, so catch rigged. Yeah, two masts and two foresails. So cutter catch. It sounds like a, a really strong, nice boat. Uh, you know, what's been the hardest challenge for you guys doing this project? It it all looks very challenging to me, but uh, what what would you say is the biggest has been the biggest technical challenge? Uh, hands down, bar on the videos. The vi <laughs> okay. Spent more time filming and editing videos than we have spent working on the boat. Okay. <laughs> what about uh, the technical challenges of actually building the boat? What was the hardest part? So far, it was determining the half breadth of the rabbit. The rabbit. What is the rabbit? The rabbit is the groove that the planking goes into. You know, I think one of the things that kind of just people like me that don't know anything about boat building, you know, fascinates me is when you you're able to bend the planks. 
right? You're steaming and bending the planks. How did you, how were you able to accomplish that? And how hard was that? And how many people did you need to do that? Um, we haven't bent on any planks yet, but we have steam bent the frames. The frames, sorry, yeah. Um, it's pretty easy. And as long as you have quality timber to begin with, it's, it really wasn't all that difficult. Just requires time, planks, hands. <laughs> yeah. I think we had seven people here when we did the frames, and it was really nice. Everybody had a job. You know, there wasn't a lot of chaos. It was like A grabbed it and handed it to B, B handed it to C, C put it in, A went back around and started ratcheting on the straps. So that worked really efficiently. It was really nice to have all of the extra hands and be able to say like push here, pull there, um, and really work those frames in quickly. Um, but other than that, I mean, as long as the steam was hot enough and they were in there long enough, they became plenty pliable. It was, it was really easy. Are you guys still active in your climbing or has the boat building kind of pushed that to the wayside? Kind of pushed it aside for a little bit at the moment. I mean, we do, you know, a little bit here and there, but definitely not as much as we used to. Yeah. Is, is there anything that you wanted me to ask you, but I didn't ask you about, or you thought was important to say that I didn't ask you about? I know one thing that's, I don't know, kind of been interesting to me at least is that we've gotten quite a few comments and suggestions and that kind of thing about ways to build a boat faster and cheaper and I think for us it has absolutely nothing to do with how fast and how cheap you can build the boat and it's a lot more how well can we build the boat and how much can we enjoy building the boat and how well can that boat last you know stand the test of time mm -hmm. um, it's kind of a trend lately of kind of getting that quick fix and it's really not our style and we have you know plans to sail on this boat for for a long time so the idea is to to build it well and take our time and enjoy the process as well right. yeah we are in no rush <laughs> sounds good you know enjoy the the boat building it uh, you know it's a work of art that you're making there uh, beyond the videos but the the boat itself I find it very impressive, and uh, I'm impressed by your hard work and, and your uh, stick-to-itiveness. I don't think it, there was any easy part uh, of what you're doing, uh, so I think and a lot of people admire that. Honestly, right. like, if we had done this before and knew exactly what we were doing, it would just be another day at work. But that, like, how are we going to do this? Head scratching and figuring it out. What challenge. Yeah, really, really enjoyed that. And that's, I mean, that's a huge part of it for us. What, what's been your biggest mistake in building the boat so far? I don't know that I would say we've made any mistakes. But like as a newbie, sometimes you do something and you're like, ah, oh, you know, I, I did something wrong. And I, if I had it to do over again on my second boat, I would do this. Such as? I mean, one was fine with the bearded line, but that was probably an issue. Was we didn't have that enough in the plans. Maybe the orientation of some of the sockets, but even that. Yeah, we haven't we haven't really had a huge like oh what did we do moments. I mean, there's there's been around some small stuff that we do it more efficiently if I did it again. Yeah. Um, some information that we now know that we didn't. But yeah, I mean, like we originally thought we were gonna pour the ballast keel into a concrete mold because we had heard of people doing that, and then we learned about a bunch of the issues with that and ended up scrapping the concrete mold. So we spent a bunch of time and money doing that, and then we just kind of ended up throwing it away and starting again. There's a lot of different things that we could have done that would have made it more, like you said, efficient, or would have been an easier way to do it. So for example, when we were trying to stand the molds up on the backbone, we didn't have anything to tie the molds back to so that they stayed where they needed to be. Um, and so we ended up building the staging around it to kind of shore it up. I don't know, 
maybe if we had built a stronger building, but even then that would have been just a lot more work. Yeah, and we spent a couple days like those molds trying to get them all hunky-dory, and then we realized that we just had to tear up the lofting floor and put the staging in um, so that we had something really solid to tie to. And, you know, in the future, I wouldn't spend those two or three days around with the mold and we would have just ripped out the lofting floor and put in staging. Yeah. But I, I, don't, I don't know, I wouldn't call that a mistake or a really big issue, and somebody else's experience would probably be completely different depending on what their structure was like that they were working within. Have a good winter. Are you able to do? Are you able to work during the winter, or is it just too cold or too snowy? Is that is that an issue? Here in New England, it, it really mostly just depends on the winter. Yeah. So I mean, we've had winters where we don't snow blow, we don't plow, we don't shovel snow, and we have other winters where it doesn't get below zero for two weeks at a stretch, and we've got a three and four foot snowpack. So it really just depends. I mean, if it's a really brutal, cold, snowy winter, if you put the damper on, um, but it's not like work will come to a screeching halt. We'll definitely yeah, keep the plan is definitely to keep working. picking away all winter. Um, but the level of predictivity just kind of depends on what old man winter throws our way this year. Yeah. I didn't see any roof on your work area. Are, have you thought about roofing it or, or not really? Like, yeah, it has a plastic roof over it. It does, okay. All enclosed. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's like greenhouse plastic. Um, and it's fine like when it snows, depending on what kind of snow it is. If it's like dry, light, fluffy snow, then that'll kind of just shed itself. But if we get, for example, like a rain and then a freeze and then a heavy snow, that'll start to pack on top of the plastic. And we definitely have to go out there and we have to like bump it off and make sure that that doesn't collapse the roof. But for the most part, it's been fine. Yeah, so in the winter, I mean, we're, we're totally enclosed. There's no wind. And with it being the greenhouse plastic, if we get a decently sunny day, it, it warms up a little bit in there. Okay. What advice would you have for other boat builders who are thinking of building a, a, a big wooden sailboat? What, what would you tell them to do? Spend your time doing your research. Yeah. I spent years and years reading about boats and boat construction before we cut down the first tree. And then a big thing for us was laying the groundwork, the, the foundation and doing that groundwork to make sure that as the build progressed, we would be in good shape. Um, you kind of got to think ahead to things coming down the line. <clears throat> kind of set yourself up. But I think one of the big things too is just not be intimidated by it. I mean, we knew nothing about what we were doing now. And like you said, it just seems good. And there's help out there. I mean, Literally every single knowledgeable, professional, boat builder, shipwright that we have ever spoken to has been so psyched and very willing to give any advice that they have. And that was honestly a little less so at the very beginning. It was kind of like, all right, guys, yeah, whatever, sure, you're going to do this thing. And uh, But once we had poured the lead keel and once we had kind of put the backbone together and we showed that we weren't stopping and that we were capable of doing that level of work, I think everyone was like, oh, you might do it, okay. And I mean, help just started pouring in at that point. So when we were running into the issues with figuring out the half breath of the rabbit, I mean, we were, we were just calling professional shipwrights and leaving a message and being like, hey, Harold, this is Steve and Alex. Uh, we're kind of stuck, can you give us a ring back? And 20 minutes later, the phone would ring and we'd be on the phone for 45 minutes with them. And they were super helpful. And I think they want to see it carried on. They want to see people doing it and if you show that you're serious and you show that you know you're you're committed to this and you're willing to listen and, and hear what people have to say the advice is there the help is there um, and that's been really big for us you guys seem like really nice guys good luck to you thank you very much all right
bye bye. So you should check out Acorn to Arabella's channel, especially if you're interested in wooden boat building. You know, I don't really like wooden boats because they are high maintenance. Uh, they're more likely to leak. Uh, if they don't if they don't have like fiberglass bottoms, then you have to really worry about them leaking offshore. You have to have your maintenance up to snuff. They're much more expensive to maintain. There are used wooden boats out there. Caveat M Tour, they're going to be uh, really expensive to maintain and maybe keep up to shape. But a new wooden boat, obviously, is going to be uh, typically going to be better. Uh going to have a potentially longer life if properly maintained than an older one so that'd be awesome to have i guess if the, you're into that thing the other thing is that the whole boat building thing i don't personally like that in the think that came out through the interview that i i think that you're much better off going out and buying say a used boat and go out sailing if you want to go sailing if sailing is what you want to do you know i think the creators of acorn out uh, to arabella alex and steven they're all about the building and obviously sailing's not that important to them because they haven't really done it yet so they're interested in the building, and I think there's a there's a lot of people like that, that they're interested in the building. They have some vague dream about sailing, some idealized notion about sailing around the world uh, without ever having to take their boat to another port because their boat's not even in the water. Uh, but I think you find, uh, and you know, I go into this in my book, Slow Boat to the Bahamas, that if you actually want to go from port to port and go anywhere, uh, there's a whole level of skill that has nothing to do with creating a hull that you need to, to work on. And it has a, very little to do with actual sailing, That those the skills that will get you around the world, which means getting to the next port. So just doing the math, and sorry, I like to do math. It seems that they, by three years, they got the planks on. So they have the interior to do, the deck to do the rigging to do, and then you start thinking about all the electrical doodads and steering and engine and all that other stuff, all of which they're probably going to be buying new in pieces. Very expensive prospect, very time-consuming prospect. So I think their 2 to 10-year estimate is good, and they might be very close to the 10-year mark when they get in the water, maybe six, who knows. I don't agree with the position uh, that people have all the time in the world to to sail. They don't. We live on this earth for a limited time. The future is not ours. We don't have uh, a right to the future. We don't know what's going to happen. Things happen. People have babies. Uh, people get married. People die. People get illnesses. And all those things get in the way of potentially some round-the-world cruise. And if you just put off the time and you're actually going to even practice sailing around the buoys or sailing in the lake until 10 years years in the future i think that's not the way to go from my personal opinion uh i'd love it if we lived forever we don't we have a limited time on this earth and if we're not doing what we want to do now when are we going to do it so one video that i put out this month is an interview with ali card troxel whose dad put off his cruising and his round the world trip until very late in his life and when he was crossing to the Marquesas, he put out a pirate SOS 
and he's not been found. And uh, I'm probably going to bring that to you in podcast form some point in the future. But you can see the video now at Slowboat Sailing's YouTube channel. It's the Pirate SOS video. And it's it's an amazing story. Just a brave story by Ali Carr Troxel. Uh, you should definitely check that out. I'll try to put a link in the show notes. For the bonus episode for patrons, we have, um, I think, over 40 bonus episodes for patrons of any level uh, by making any pledge at patreon.com slash sailing. My plan is to read the track of the typhoon, probably the first chapter, or part of the first chapter, by William Washburn Nutting. Um, William Washburn Nutting was the first Commodore of the Cruising Club of America, I believe, uh, which is also the body that gives out the Blue Water Medal, which uh, many famous sailors throughout history have won. And uh, Mr. Nutting in this book goes from Newfoundland, I think, or Nova Scotia to England and back. And there's a lot of adventures therein. On a relatively small sailboat, Mr. Nutting was lost at sea soon after he wrote this book uh, off the coast of Greenland and all hands on his small yacht were lost. So if you're a patron, you'll get to hear a reading of the track of the typhoon, its first chapter. Next month, I'm going to read you another Forgotten Sailing classic. And if you're a captain or higher level patron, then uh, you'll be mentioned in the acknowledgments for that book, the ebook and paperback version, which comes out in January 2019. And we'll have a sample from that in episode 56 of the Slow Boat Sailing podcast. But you need to sign up as a captain or higher level patron for a limited time. That's as, as little as $5 before Christmas to get in the acknowledgments. So thanks a lot for being a patron. My name is Linus Wilson. Go out and have some fun on the water. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Jana Wilson. Thank you for listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Subscribe to our free newsletter at slowboatsailing.com.